welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We have come to the beginning of the second half of our major study of the book of Daniel, and today we start looking at a four-week study of chapter 7. The book of Daniel is mainly a book of prophecy, but so far we have seen history in the first six chapters. Now we begin to look at the prophecy and the exciting parts of the great book. Class teacher Doug Brady has taught the book of Daniel in the past, but he has learned so much in the interim that he decided to do the book again, and we, the Believer's Bible class, are certainly benefiting from this study. In this lesson, we will see the seven beasts come up out of the sea, and Doug describes each of these beasts as it's given in the scripture text. As we get to the next three weeks, we will understand much more of what we hear today. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We have over 100 members in this class, and we're welcoming more every week. If you are in the area visiting or living here, we would love to meet you and have you visit in our class. Well, I see Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so open your Bible to Daniel chapter 7. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. It is so good to be back, and we are going to get today into the topic that many of you thought Daniel was all about, and that was prophecy. And I hate to tell you this, I'm going to tell you it in advance in case you want to jump up and storm out and leave. Today, I'm going to take you right up to the precipice, and then we're not going to go any farther on the most exciting parts, the most interesting parts, the future parts. But I promise you, if you come back next Sunday, we will certainly be jumping over the edge and looking at what's going to happen in the future for us and our nation and our world. But you might want to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, and we have reached the halfway part uh, from an Occidental point of view in this book. We, uh, you know, it, it has 12 chapters, and we've studied the first six. We're starting in the last six. From an Oriental point of view, we haven't reached the midway point yet. That's after seven, because seven is part of the chiasm. And what chapter in the Bible does chapter seven of Daniel correspond with? Chapter two. Exactly right. And we're learning this chiasic type understanding. Now, one of the things I want you to see is that these chapters are not consecutive. Let's look at the chart just a second. You'll see that chapter five... So these two, seven and eight, if we were going to put this in consecutive order, they would be up here after two, but before five. But that's not the way the Oriental mind thinks. And these are appropriate to them to be down here where they are. So I wanted you to see that. And if you're trying to follow things chronologically, you're going to have a tr a trouble. I'm, you have to look at this book as a Middle Easterner. And so we need to see and understand that. Now, there's something else I want you to see. And it's important, I think, for us to understand because it's going to help us in these last chapters. From the time of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 4, when Daniel was called in, you remember Daniel was kind of in the background. They called in other you would think Nebuchadnezzar would know by now, call Daniel first. But no, 
No, they called the others. They couldn't help him. So then Daniel comes in and he explains that dream. From that point of that dream, which was clearly a message from God, until today in chapter 7, verse 1, it's been 23 years. You say, wait a second. There was a message in chapter 5 from God that he interpreted. Yeah, but chapter 5 occurred after chapter 7. So we've had 23 years. So 23 years first from the dream of Nebuchadnezzar until the vision recorded in Daniel chapter 7. How long? Ah, 23 years. Some people call that period the years of silence and that the years of silence for Daniel. I personally don't believe that. I know there's some very reputable scholars who want to say that, but that's just because a message from God hasn't been written in the book. That does not mean that Daniel was not communicating with God. I think that what Daniel was doing, he was reading and studying ferociously the books of the Old Testament. He was constantly communing with God and spending time with him and developing a library that he is going to pass on. Where do you think the wise men in Matthew got their information? From the library of Daniel. Immeasurable influence. Now, when we start this book, I mean this chapter 7, Daniel's in his mid-60s. And I want you to remember that chapter 7 is the last chapter to be written in Aramaic. The first chapter and the first three verses of chapter 2 were written in Hebrew. All the rest been written in Aramaic until we get to chapter 8, verse 1. Then it's going to be Hebrew again. Now, why would God have Daniel change languages right in the middle of this book? Why? Say that again, Susan. Yes, he is telling the world from chapter 2 to chapter 7 what's going on. But chapters 1 and chapters 8 through 12 is to the Jews. Now, does God ever really write portions of the scripture that are directed, say, at one group of people as opposed to everyone? Well, the book of Matthew. What, who's it written to? To the Jews. It's very Jewish-oriented. He's trying to prove to the Jews that Jesus was not only their Messiah, but their king. If you look at Luke, he's aimed at a very Greek audience. You look at the Gospel of John, it's to the whole world. You see, God aims different books at different people. If you remember Titus, he's really talking to God's ministers and teachers and pastors. That's what he's aiming at there and instructing them what they should be doing. So we need to come to understand how God is doing this and that this last book here in chapter 7 is all about the world. But it's about the world from a very different perspective, as we're going to see in just a minute. But before we do, and before we look at the passage here, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, as we open your book, I first want to say thank you for bringing me back. Thank you for letting me teach today. Thank you for letting me to share these exciting concepts and and the things that we're going to be able to see as we go on, things that it's talking about, I believe, about our age right now, of things that are preparing to happen and are going to happen with certainty. I pray, Father, that you help us to be diligent in our studies, and you'll have your Holy Spirit expanding and in enlivening our understanding so that we can talk with with great wisdom to those around us to tell them that the time is short and that you are going to come back soon. Pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit, who I pray you have in fill me, empower me, and control me. Amen. Now, Father, now as we look, we're going to start with these visions. And what we have here is Daniel 7 one through three. In the first year of Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind. 
as he lay on his bed. And he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. And Daniel said, I was looking in my vision at night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, in this book, there are several things, I mean, in this passage, there are several things that at first when I looked at them, I, they didn't seem right, or that I needed to understand. The first one was this. It says, a dream and visions. Sounds like singular and plural. How can that be? If it's the same thing. What we need to understand is this is kind of like a one-act play. Now, some of you know what a one-act play is. You'll have one act, but you'll have multiple scenes in that one act. That's what we have here. You're going to see a, a, a one-act play, and in the first scene, you're going to have four animals that are coming out of the sea. Then the second act is going to look at each of those animals in turn. And then the third act is going to introduce us to someone called the Ancient of Days. And then finally, the fourth act is going to introduce us to somebody called the Son of Man. And we're going to see all those things in this play. We will probably only get through one scene a Sunday. But that's where we are going. Now, there's something... The next thing I'm going to show you, it doesn't confuse me as much as it irritates me. And that's this. He wrote this dream down, you notice, as soon as he woke up. He, he saw the visions. He wrote it down. But what did he give us? Summary. A summary. I don't want a summary. I want the whole thing. Everything you wrote down, Daniel. Why are you only doing that? If you look at this Aramaic word, I guess it may explain the reason why, in your notes, I put it in there for you. The word is raish, and raish means a summary, but that is the essential content. Does God tell us everything? What does he tell us? What we need to know, exactly. And he also, it's interesting, he tells it in a way, for example, there's a lot of things you're going to see in this book that he tells Daniel that he writes down. Daniel doesn't understand. If you look in Ezekiel, which is the other exilic prophet, there's things he told him he doesn't understand. But we can take those same things and we can understand them because we have so much more history than they did and could see these things. And we're given open windows and so he does it on a need to know. And if you're frustrated as I was to start to say, why didn't he give us the whole thing? He's going to give you more than he gave Daniel. That is an understanding. So we need to be thankful for that. Now, the next thing I want you to see is the location here. The great sea. Where is this happening? The great sea. Well, what does that mean? A lot of people say, well, that must be the Mediterranean. That's where everything is. He's not talking about an actual sea. And one of the things that you need to understand as we're looking through this, the chapter that, that corresponds with this one is chapter 2. In chapter 2, he gave ne who, who did he give the dream to? Nebuchadnezzar. Not Daniel. Now, it's interesting that really the correct question uh, the correct answer to that question, who did he give the dream to, is Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Because how can Daniel explain it to Nebuchadnezzar if he didn't see it? He gave it to both of them, but he gave it to Nebuchadnezzar first. And it was really Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so this is the dream from the world's point of view in chapter 2. These, this is Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. Now, think about this a second. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? He was the oppressor of the Jews. Because this dream is all about the time of the Gentiles. When the Gentiles will be in control of the Holy Land and dealing and mistreating the Jews. Daniel, on the other hand, he's the, not the oppressor, he's the oppressed. And so you see there's a big difference here. The dream of Nebuchadnezzar is from the man's perspective. The dream given to Daniel is from God's perspective. 
And that's going to be important to see and understand how God thinks about things. And God sees humanity as sea. And I want you to come understand this. In, now, if I was Jewish, I wouldn't say humanity. I'd say the Gentiles. But no, anyone who's not a believer is part of this sea. And we need to come to understand that. Is there any other scripture that would support that interpretation? Well, let's look. And would you suggest maybe, Steve, Revelation 17, 1? Yep. All right. Well, let's look then. In Revelation 17, 1, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying... Now, we don't have time to explain who the seven angels were and the seven bowls. But look what he said. Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters... Who is the great harlot? Another name for her was Mystery Babylon. How Lindsay tell you, I call her Scarlet O'Harlot. But I don't use puns like that. In verse 15, he says, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So we go on. Verse uh, chapter 17 of Isaiah is going to speak to this. It says, Alas, the uproars of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. Here Isaiah is referring to these waters as human, the human population. Now, I think it's very telling here in Isaiah 57, 20. It says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet. And what is the result? And its waters toss up refuse and mud. Now, just so we understand this from God's position, what does refuse mean? Yeah, maybe we ought not say it out loud. We have some very uh, sensitive young ladies here with us today, like Vera. And so we don't want don't to do anything that would make her feel uncomfortable. Uh, well... Vera is? No, you thought I said Julie. So anyway, Revelation 13.1 is going to speak of it again. I know that Steve was going to refer to so I wanted to beat him to it, to Revelation 13.1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his heads were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now, we don't have time to explain what all that means. We're going to talk about that next week. But you see, where is he coming from, this beast? The sea. That is, these, these Gentile peoples that we need to understand. Because this time is called the times of the Gentiles. Now, in go back to uh, Daniel chapter, yeah, right here. The stirring up of the great sea. That word translating this verb, stirring up, is a little mild. Fomenting, uh, churning, maybe would be better translations of this word. Now, if we look at the example that is used, remember it's an analogy of the sea to the masses of humanity. What causes, does the sea churn on its own? Not really that much. It does not. What are the influences? Well, you could have high winds that influence. You could have great changes in barometric pressure that could cause it. You could have uh, uh, great changes in gravity if the moon gets too close. You could have uh, uh, a uh, volcanic eruption on the bed of the sea that comes up and makes an eye. All those You could have a meteor hitting it and causing a tsunami. All these kinds of things. So there are external sources. Now in this one, what sources are causing this fomenting? Well, that's not, not correct, really. Look what it says. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Well, wait. What is the four winds of heaven? It's one of two things, or both. It's either demonic beings or angelic beings. Now, that's really a bit incorrect because demonic beings are angelic beings, but they are fallen angelic beings, so we call them demonic beings. 
So it's one or both of, of those two that are causing that. And I want you to see that. So who is causing this in reality? Going back to what Don said, God. God's causing this. Now, he's, he's using someone else other than himself. He's, not, he's in management, and these are carrying out his orders of the board director, so to speak. But we need to understand this. Now, one other thing that I want you to see here in this passage, this word, great beasts, four great beasts, that's what I wanted you to see. It's a little different than the great sea. This word great here can mean great as in magnificent. It can also mean great as in monstrous. You know, if you were over in Thailand and a meteor hits the sea and here comes this great wave that's 100 feet tall, you wouldn't call it awesome. You'd call it a monstrous wave and you would try to run as fast as you could because you know it's going to kill you if you don't bury you in a wall of water. That's the same concept of this word here, and that's what I think should be. So now we're going to look at each of these beasts that are coming out of the sea in order. This is what they're going to look like. There's the lion first, the bear second, the leopard third, and the indescribable beast will be fourth. So if you look at 7-4, it says... The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a mind was given to it. Now, there's a correspondence here I want you to see in this first kingdom. So it's comparing the head of gold with the lion. We know that to be Babylon, and the empire, you could say, was... 605, I think it really started a little sooner than that, maybe more like 610 once Nabopolassar put these Babylonian clans together, but extended to 539, we all know how the empire ended when Belshazzar was killed that night, and so that's what it's looking at. Let's go back now to this, to this verse, and I want you to see this Babylonian empire here. Looks something like this. You see, it's taken in Egypt. It's all up and down here in Mesopotamia. Goes even into Asia Minor. And everywhere that was considered important at that time. Now, one of the prior allies of Babylon was Media, which is right here. So he didn't uh, invade and take over Media. In fact, he was working with him, Nebuchadnezzar was at the time. You're going to see Media changes alliance here in just a minute. But I want you to see how that was working. Now, let's go and talk about a lion just a second. Some of you know a little bit about lions. Some of you really not that much, except maybe you're scared of them, uh, which is not inappropriate. Yes? On the uh, New King James, it gives man's heart was given. The New American Standards says a mind. Is there, did you hear any? Yes, and let me, it's basically the same word. The King James wanted to say or use heart for every, and you'll see the King James uses heart. The new, new King James just adopted it. But the center of the man they viewed was the heart. And today, our understanding is, you know, although I still would say you ought to invite Jesus into your heart, some will say, oh, you should never say that. That's just a muscle. Well, you know, it just depends on a cultural looking at what we're talking about. The real inner person is, is what it is. But good question. So on this lion, this lion is the largest predator of the two cats that are mentioned here. Not the largest predator, but the, the largest of the two cats. And, of course, it's proverbial, proverbially referred to as the king of the beasts. Lions are extremely well-muscled and are able to run at a high rate of speed for a very short burst. The male lion can weigh up to 500 pounds, which is we're not talking about female lions here. We're talking about males. And they, there is no prey animal that lions cannot take down. Now, you think about that a second. 
The biggest animal I guess you could think of over there in Africa is an elephant. They can take down elephants. Now, it takes a whole pride, but they can do it. In the same way, a giraffe is also an extremely difficult prey to bring down. But a pride of lions can and regularly do bring down giraffes. One of the animals that's prey that has the most nasty disposition is a water buffalo or a cape buffalo. And they are extremely mean. There are some guides who would tell you if you wound a water buffalo, don't go try and find it. Get out of there because right now he's looking for you. And he will kill you. And we have some people in our class who have shot some of those animals. And uh, it can be quite terrifying and getting the adrenaline flowing uh, quite strongly. But these lions are magnificent beasts. They are the only cat, big cat predator that believes in community. And they have a lion pride. And they have males and females and children or cubs and they uh, uh, live that way. Other, other big cats do not. Now, let's look what it's saying about it. The lion was the self-selected symbol of Babylon. Winged lions guarded the main gates of the city and lined the roads through the city that led to the royal palace. Here's one example here. In the, the brickwork or the masonry, there they've put imposed this winged lion. You look here again. As uh, they went along the road, they would have these. See that column with the winged lion on the top. Natural forgot to select a winged lion for the top. And what kind of wings does it have? Whose wings? Eagles. So what you've got here is a lion that demonstrates this strength and dominion. You have the king of the beasts and the king of the birds combined. Now, the, the uh, wings represent speed. And here, Babylon's uh, over, or takeover of the world, so to speak, by Nebuchadnezzar was with great speed. Nobody had ever done it. Well, nobody had really ruled the world completely in the, the then known world before Nebuchadnezzar. And he took it over in very quickly. And that's one of the reasons they were there. But then the wings were plucked, it says. And that's a loss of a major asset here. What could that possibly be referring to with these wings being plucked? When Nebuchadnezzar suffered from lycanthropy, when he, that is when he was, God made him an animal. And for seven years, they didn't have a ruler. And maybe Daniel was the one who was responsible for taking care of the kingdom, waiting for Nebuchadnezzar to come back. But uh, that's what happened. But then at the end, he did. And then you have this humanizing of the lion, which was the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar, who's now a believer. And that's what this pictures. So that's the first beast. Now the next beast is coming in. It's going to be a bear. And it represents the kingdom of Medo-Persian. What does it correspond to? Now, these pictures are not the way that I would draw them. Because I believe that the statue, the silver, is only the shoulders, say, down to the pecs, and the arms would be of silver. Not the, the whole torso. Just that part. But it represents the Medo-Persian empire from 539 to 331. You see, it lasted a lot longer than the empire of Babylon. It took it longer to overcome or to take out or take over this uh, entire uh, empire and expand it. Daniel 7, 5 says this, And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. So the bear is the Medo-Persian empire. Let's talk about bears just a second. I, I don't know. You know, there's an old story that if you're out in the woods, let's say Don and I were out in the woods, and we came upon a bear, and this bear was obviously menacing and going to attack us. Well, what would I do? No, you wouldn't be able to. That's why I picked you for this example. I can outrun you, I am certain. And so that's all I need to be. Now, the bear can outrun either one of us extremely fast. 
but all I have to do is be able to outrun Don to survive. Don, of course, if he can outrun me, then he would be the one surviving. That would be a real motivation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would. Now, the bear is heavier and larger than either of the other two predators that are mentioned here. I can't compare it to the fourth one because that's an animal that can't be described. Did you know that bears have some of the most prolific sense of smells in the animal world? You think, well, a bloodhound would be probably one with the best sense. No, bear has at least six times better sense of smell than a bloodhound. They're amazing. I think that would make him so mad, but I'm going to let you hit him in the nose. I'm going to keep running. Now, but a bear, for the most part, they weigh more than the lion, and they try to destroy you by brute strength. Brute strength. Is that a good comparison for the Medo-Persian Empire? And the answer is absolutely. Like the bear, the Medo-Persian Empire would try to overpower its enemies by brute strength. Do you know it would field armies of between 700,000 and 800,000 men? They didn't. That was like the Chinese army today. Nobody had those kind of armies that were that large. And the visions showing the, this bear being higher or stronger on one side is indicative of the partnership here. It's the Medes and the Persians. But eventually, the Persians dominated the Medes because they were just stronger than them. Now, a lot of uh, historians who teach you history, whether it's in a high school level or college level, they will tell you, no, this was the Persian Empire. Well, if they do that, then they're leaving out part of history because it started out as the Medes and the Persians because the Medes no longer liked how Babylon was treating them, and so they became allies of the Persians, and they, they took it up. So that's what it means to be raised up on one side. Now, the next thing it says there, there's three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. What is that talking about? Well, there are two understandings of that phrase it could be representing the three kingdoms that were in power before the Medo-Persian Empire. That is the kingdom of Egypt, then the kingdom of Assyria, and then the kingdom of Babylon. I reject that point of view. I don't think it applies because what does it have to do that he's got these three ribs in his mouth? No, I think it's the three major kingdoms or adversaries that it took and destroyed as it was building its empire. And that would be uh, Lydia. You see, here's Egypt. Lydia is right there. And of course, we know Babylon was right in here. And so those were the three major battles, the three major enemies they had to overcome. And then I want you to notice this. It says, arise, devour much meat. No one has owned this much territory before in the history of the world, as of the time. They did... Uh, they greatly expanded the borders of the Babylonian Empire in which they came in and took. Now, when Daniel is explaining this in this summary of his dream and visions, has this happened? Nobody knew about this. And yet, Daniel can explain it this clearly with this kind of detail? That should be amazing. I mean, what if I could sit up here and tell you in the next 50 years, here's going to be the way the world is laid out. You'd have to say, well, if you're telling us the truth that this actually happens, Brady, you're a prophet. Well, Daniel is a prophet. I'm not. But he is, and he's seeing things. But why does he see them? You see, that's, that's what the higher biblical critics refuse to accept. This is not Daniel doing this. He didn't come up with this dream and these visions. God gave it to him. That's who this belongs to, is God. And we need to see, of course, he would know. I think he was setting a foundation and preparing before God gave him this. He was reading Jeremiah. He was reading Isaiah. He was reading copies of Ezekiel and even Lamentations. And then he was also familiar with the other books like Genesis, what was predicted there in Genesis. You know, it's interesting. You bring that up. Genesis has a vision in it that it doesn't talk about throughout the entire Bible 
until you come to the 12th chapter of Revelation. That is the vision that Daniel, pardon me, that Joseph has of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And it's incorporated into Revelation. You see, sometimes you think, but eventually the Bible will interpret itself if you just are patient and you give it the opportunity. Now, God directs the course and the conducts of nations, including the destruction of nations. When, I didn't say if, when the United States is going to be destroyed, who will be directing that? And what would be the primary reason for that? Punishment. Do you remember? He gave ten talents to this slave, five talents to this slave, one talent to this slave. And he said, to when he came back and the guy who had 10 now had 20, he said, well done, I'm rewarding you. The guy who had five and now had 10, well done. The guy who had one, he said, well, I didn't want to lose it, so I went and buried it. He said, I'm taking it away from you and giving it to one of them. Not well done. And our nation now was given so much, he cannot say, well done, United States of America, any longer. It's a shame. And we will be punished. How do you know that, Doug? Well, I find in uh, Don's favorite book, which is Nahum, and in Nahum 1.3, you probably remember this, but do you mind if I read it? Not at all. Okay. In Nahum 1.3, it says, Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That includes us. But before I get too carried away, let's go on, because now we come to the leopard of Greece, and you will see it's in comparison to the abdomen and the flanks of bronze. You notice it's dates from 331 B.C. to 168. And you notice in 168, that was about the time of the Maccabean Revolution and revolt when they took back the promised land. And this is what is said there in Daniel chapter 7, verse 6. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, one of the things you need to understand in this visions, you remember this is like a what? A one-act play, right? And these scenes are going on. So, when Daniel's seeing this, is he seeing a snapshot or is he seeing a video? No. I know you were 50% chance on guessing there, but it's a video. And you see a leopard. And then you see these four heads and these four wings. This is a progression. Each of these is progressive, just like the lion. It was progressive. It had wings when it started. And then the wings were plucking and had no wings. And then it was made to stand up like a man. And this is a video, not a snapshot. And the same thing is true here with this leopard. And so he comes in and it represents Greece. Now, the leopard is known for two things. Number one, speed and agility on the one hand. And number two, cunning and stealth on the other. There's an old saying uh, over in Africa that says, the leopard who you see you should not have any problem with. It's the leopard you don't see that will be your downfall. Leopards are like that. They are not as big as lions, but they can run at speeds up to 36 miles an hour for short distances. 36 miles an hour. Now, they have tremendous power in their shoulders, and they are able to carry prey that's twice their weight up a tree. They, take, they can kill an impala that weighs maybe twice as much as them, grab it by the neck or shoulders with their jaws, and climb up a tree carrying it up there with them. And then they would store it up there in what's called the leopard's larder, where they would just keep it because no other prey animal can get up there and get it. They put it up high enough, lion can't get it. Hyenas can't climb up there. Cheetahs can't do that. And so that's what they would do. Now... It's also important to see that leopards blend in the scenery better than any other predators you can find. Due, that's due to their unusual and varied spot pattern. 
you look at, say, cheetah spots, they're basically all the same. But the leopards, it changes, and they're modeled, and they have, uh, you look at that, you will see the difference. And letter, leopards are quite furtive. That means evasive secrecy is in their nature. Alexander was like a leopard. He conquered the civilized world that we see between 10 and 12 years. How do you do that with no mechanized vehicles at all? Do we have a map? Now, look at the border. He went all the way into India. Now, do you remember how many, what were the standing army was of the Persians? Seven to 800,000. Do you know how many men Alexander led into this conquest? 30,000 foot soldiers, 5,000 cavalry. That's 35,000. How could he defeat an army of 700,000? Number one, he was a military genius. But number two, his men were trained. If you ever saw the movie, uh, The 300, you have an understanding of the superiority of the Grecian soldier, especially, in that case, the Spartan soldier. But that's what happened. And he fought all the way to India. And when he got to India, you know what he did? He cried. And you know why he cried? Because there's nothing left to conquer. So he goes back to Babylon and there he is in Babylon at age 33, and he died, and he died of physical excesses and venereal disease. When a man is great, his temptations are great also, and most of the time they eventually overwhelm him, unless that man is great because of God. And he left no biological descendants, and that's why we have four heads and four wings. You see, the four heads and the four wings of the third beast represent the four kingdoms into which the empire was divided after Alexander's death. Alexander had four key generals, and after his death, the empire was divided among them. And I'm going to try and, and show you these different empires. The first one was Lysimachus, and Lysimachus took over Trace, here and part of Asia Minor. The second one was Cassander, and Cassander took over basically this part of Greece. Then you had Seleucids, and Seleucus took over the rest of Asia Minor and this part of Persia. And then you had Ptolemy, and he took over this part of the Promised Land and Egypt. Now, here's a question. If the Seleucid Empire is going to fight with the Ptolemaic Empire, and the Ptolemaic Empire is going to fight with Seleucid. Who's right in the middle? Israel. And that's what you're going to see when we get to chapter 8. But I want to prepare you for that, and that's the way that worked. And that brings us to the fourth beast. Yes, Isn't Alexander the Great buried in Israel? I do not know the answer to that. I do not know the location of his grave. I read that what we do know that Josephus told us was Alexander's marching down there and he gets to Jerusalem and he's fixing to lay siege to Jerusalem and the high priest comes out and seeks an audience with him and he unfurls the scroll of Daniel and he shows them what it's talking about in Daniel about Alexander and what he's going to do and he says okay I, I give Israel a pass and I'll go on just don't be used against me. Never. never happened anywhere else, no. Of course, nowhere else did they have the book of Daniel to show him. Now, that brings us to the first part of chapter 7, verse 7. Because we're talking about Rome now, which started around 167 and went to 476 AD. This is the longest running empire that we have here with this horrible beast that it's going to describe in verse 7. He says, and after this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast. Now, that's why I would say there's different scenes for different of these animals, these beasts, monsters, beasts, because he says, I keep looking at the night vision. Behold, a fourth beast, a dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. Now, obviously, there's not any animals that has large iron teeth, but this is this this thing, and it devoured and crushed and tomped down the remainder with his feet, and it was different from all the other beasts before it. 
So what has happened here? Maybe this animal looked like this. I don't know. But how are you going to describe something that doesn't exist? There's no animal that could be found to represent this kingdom. But this beast with teeth of iron represents Rome, and as did the loins and legs of iron in Nebuchadnezzar's statue. The ten toes correspond with the ten heads, pardon me, the ten horns on this beast. So you had ten toes on the statue, ten horns to start with on this fourth beast. There are ten kingdoms that arise out of this. Now, he calls this beast every bad name he can think of or description. And that's because the Roman Empire was by far the most wicked and evil of human uh, domains that the world has ever seen. It was. We haven't seen anything as evil as the Roman Empire. Your history professors don't tell you how wicked and evil they are. Maybe they don't know because they were never told. Now, can God take a wicked and evil empires and use them for his own means to accomplish his purposes? Yes. Any question? Um, I see this in a cross. Armies don't have to kill tons of people. They, they can go in and, and really make people afraid. And that's what the cross was for. It was a brutal thing and it, it brought people into submission when they saw people on a cross. Right. You see somebody on a cross, you will never forget it the first time you see it. And it is extremely intimidating. Do you want to die that way? You know, it's interesting. The Romans didn't create the cross. The Assyrians did. But the Romans found it and adopted it and put in a few modifications of their own. And it became something that was horrible. Now, let, let's go forward and talk from maybe from Kim's perspective here. Because, you see, God does that. How did God use these nations? Let's look back at it. And I want you to see, you know, but before I show you that, if you have your Bibles, open it up to Revelation chapter uh, 13. I want you to see something I found that's kind of interesting. Revelation chapter 13. We've read Revelation chapter 13 verse 1 already today. But as I was thinking through this and it came to my mind, verse 1 starts out, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and ten heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. Now, check out verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like that of a bear, and his mouth was like that of a lion. Now, have we heard of those before? But John got it wrong here because it's in the wrong order. He said a leopard and then a bear and then a lion, where clearly the right order is Daniel's, right? A lion, a bear, and a leopard. No, it's not. When Daniel was looking at it, what does he got? A lion, a bear, and then a leopard. But when John is over here looking at it, the first thing he sees was the leopard, because that was Greece. And then you have to go back before that, and there's the bear, and then before that is the lion. You see how that works? It's all a matter of perspective. I think what we need to re come to understand, we need to really pray for Don. Not only is he known as the favorite Amalekite of this class, now we know he has a mother, ex-mother-in-law that looks like the great beast, the harlot. And uh, so we need to pray for him. And maybe even more, we need to pray for Damaris because she has to deal with that. And, uh, but let's look at how God used Babylon. First of all, God used Babylon to punish the kingdom of Judah for their gross immorality. If you were living in Judah at the time of Daniel, you would have known of some of the degradation that went on among those Jewish people, but much of it you would never know existed. But God always knows a nation, and you don't, and you don't know anywhere close to the depth of sin in our, in our nation. You do not know all of the wickedness that is going on in our nation. Sometimes my wife studies these kind of things relentlessly. Sometimes I have to say, let's not talk anymore. It's because I don't want to hear it anymore. 
If you were to see what's going on in our nation, I believe you'd become physically ill. How sickening, sickening it is that's going on. Can you imagine somebody who's civilized cooking and eating a baby? We're not going to get into that. But I, I just, it terribly, terribly saddens me, grieves me that God's nation that he gave us would. Let me tell you what else Babylon did. They allowed the land of Israel to lie fallow for 70 years because Israel had not obeyed God and done that. In addition to that, do you know that they, one of the things that started Israel's problem there and Judah's problem was the worship of idols. Babylon erased this problem of idols in the nation of Israel. Never again when they came back did they ever have a problem with idol worship. Never again. They were through with that. Babylon was used to do that. Now you look at Medo-Persia. What did they do? Well, the first thing God used them for was to punish the Babylonians for what they did and how wicked they were to God's people. He used them to release the Jewish people from captivity and let them go home to their land to enable them to return to the promised land and restore Jerusalem. It's one thing to say, you can go back, but I'm going to help you rebuild your city, Jerusalem. Cyrus did that. In addition to that, he made provision for the people to rebuild their temple. Now think about that. Why would Cyrus want to rebuild the temple of Yahweh? Unless maybe he worshiped. Kathy? I think it was, I think it was Ahasuerus. I think it was Ahasuerus who uh, Esther was involved with a little later. Uh, I think he learned of God from, from Esther. His wife was able to win him to the Lord. Now, what about Greece? How did God use Greece? Besides to fry uh, chicken fried steak. No. To provide a worldwide stable culture. It, I've been thinking about that. Julie and I just said the other day, man, we haven't had chicken fried steak in a long time. Let's cook some. But anyway, I prefer Bobby Flay's recipe for chicken fried steak if you've ever tried it. But... How I got off on that, I have no idea. Greece. Let's focus on Greece. What did they do? They provided a very sophisticated worldwide culture that everybody was living in the same type of culture. Okay? And in addition to that, they provided a worldwide language. Everybody was speaking Greek. That was the second language that you would speak. Now, we don't recognize that that much today, but what's the, really the second language of the world? English. We don't recognize that because we speak English as our first language, our native tongue. But they learn English all over the world because it's used, it's the lingua franca of the world. There was a time when French was the lingua franca of the world. But at this time, it was Greece, or Greek, and it was created by Alexander and his tutor Aristotle, and they made it extremely precise, extremely scientific, where there's not much ambiguity because the commander of the army didn't want ambiguity in the orders that he was sending out. And so they provided that, and the whole world used that language. They also then, God used this after Alexander died to create a situation where a type of the Antichrist could be pictured to Israel so they would see it. Now, if you were to explain this to a Jewish person today, would they want to see that? No. You know why? We've had our Holocaust. We've had our 70 AD. Let me tell you, what happened to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judah in 70 AD, and what happened in Germany and Eastern Europe from the Holocaust which were horrible, our child's play, compared to what's going to happen when the Antichrist decides, through Satan, to destroy every Jewish person they can in the whole world. Yes. Well, the Christians technically will be gone, so they'll be believers. Yes, they'll be believers, but they will be killed too. But it's going to be horrible, and they don't want to hear it. They think it's, we're past that. No, they're not. But it's going to turn Israel back to God. It finally will. Now let's look at the Roman Empire. You say, God 
used the Greeks to put in a culture that was going to be worldwide, that everybody can understand what's going on, and a language that's very... But the Romans come next, before the New Testament was written. They're going to use their language and their culture. No, they're not. You see, God put it in the Romans' mind. Those people are commoners. Let them speak Greek. That's the language of the common man. They don't deserve to speak Latin. That's the patrician language. And only we will speak that language. Only we will celebrate Roman culture. Not them. Who put that on their mind? They thought that was their idea, but no, it wasn't. It was God's. Because that's what he wanted to do. And so they came in. They didn't change any of that, but they did put together a superior travel system, either by roads, Roman roads or or shipping. They provided a superior communication system and provided a consistent enforcement of the legal system, which seeks peace through force. And maybe some of us are coming to see that the only real way that you'll ever have a peaceful society is through force. If the threat of force is not sufficient, evil men and women will try to destroy peace, usually for greed or for power. So... They also, and one of the major things they did here, and Kim brought this up, to put in power an empire that would adopt and enhance a form of capital punishment to use to murder God's son. The Romans didn't know it. David predicted it a thousand years before it happened in Psalm 22. Well, that was before the Romans even existed. That was before they even thought about crucifixion. Donna. The only thing I remember No, they don't. And that's, and that's something they did. But you need to see that this is key. Because Jesus couldn't die of stoning. He couldn't die of anywhere else. He had to die of crucifixion. Or the prophets were wrong. And the Bible would be wrong. But God brought it just about and perfectly described so many elements of a crucifixion in Psalm 22. And in fact, you know how Psalm 22 starts? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh my goodness. Yes, that's how Rome was used. And I wanted you to see that. Now, yes. I love that uh, when they say that it started with a tree with Adam and Eve and it ended with a tree with crucifixion. And uh, not the end. Because the tree of life is coming back, and that's where we're going to spend our time, and it'll have a different... Well, we don't have time to get into that. But I want you to see this, because I want to finish here pretty soon, so I don't keep you too late. Daniel saw both dreams. The dream of the statue illustrated the political aspects of these four kingdoms, uh, while Daniel's dream depicted their spiritual and moral characteristics. All of these kingdoms were beasts. Horrible, monstrous beasts, and they were evil and cruel without a sense of mercy or contrition. Now, let's look real quick at some purposes of God here. You see, everybody wants to push evolution. Well, there is one thing that we can see, and that's, is there evolution in human beings? Are human beings evolving into something better, or are they doing exactly the opposite, devolving into something worse? And it's clearly the second. And God is saying, you believe in that? How can you believe in that with the proof that I have given you amongst yourselves? And uh, even though we now live in a time when man could destroy this world in which he lives, and the preservation of human history or existence, that will not happen. How do you know? Because God has said, this is the way it's going to end. You may think you could push a button and destroy it. You can't. But there will come a time when I push a button and I will destroy it. But not you. It will never happen because of God's promises in these prophecies that we have. You see, the purpose of human history is to demonstrate that man is inept in ruling the world. And perfection will only come when God intervenes and takes full control. And we must be convinced that the God who's mapped out the future is able to handle the present. If that's true, do we have any reason to worry? No. 
No, we don't. God says, don't worry. Bring it to me. I'll take care of it. I'm sorry I went so late. Uh, You can see why I couldn't get into the little horn. And we will talk about the little horn, Mr. Loudmouth, you might say, uh, next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could gather. I thank you for preserving and giving us the part of the dream that you did. Help us to understand it uh, this next week and be able to really share it in such a way that we can teach it to others. Be with our pastor today, and I bless the message. And I thank you for the friends and brothers and sisters we have in this class. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you.